So hello, my name is Matthew Page. Uh, I run the Bible Films blog and I'm currently writing a book on the Bible and film. And my name's Melanie Page. I am wife of Matthew Page, who runs the Bible Film blog. <coughs> um, and I'm an artist and musician and art psychotherapist. And, uh, and we're basically here to talk about Boris Gerrit's film, The Lamentations of Judas, which has just opened in the Netherlands this this weekend, uh, sorry, last weekend. And uh, we thought it would be really interesting just to kind of bring our different perspectives on this film into kind of conversation with, with one another. So, Yeah, and we've, we've literally just finished watching the film, so it's mm. fairly fresh. Um, yeah. I didn't know anything about it before sitting down to watch it, so um, it's a, a first impression. Yeah. So we should probably start with a kind of description of the film. Um, do you want to do that? So technically it's a, it's classed as a documentary, but really it's a, a combination of uh, genres. It's kind of a crossover, I guess, between the documentary sections, which are probably the majority of the film, uh, but that's also kind of spliced in between a kind of a Jesus film, parts of a Jesus film, and both parts of the film are set in uh, in uh, Africa, in the uh, near Pomfret uh, in South Africa, and it really re- revolves around the story of the 32nd Battalion, um, who were a group of soldiers from uh, involved on the South African side of the kind of South African wars in Namibia and Angola, at the kind of Later, towards the later end of the last century. Um, but the soldiers themselves were from Angola originally. So I guess um, what drew me to this film and has interested me in this film um, is the fact that the characters in the film, if you want to call them characters, um, who are kind of acting out this passion play um, are these black Angolan soldiers who became known as the terrible ones and who are perhaps seen as um, in their culture as people who'd betrayed their black brothers as it was described mm. in the film by fighting in the war on the side of the white South, South Africans um, and their lives now are very much kind of well I guess it's like they're in exile isn't it almost they've been sent to live in this um, desolate desert place Mm. Um, in, is it in South Africa? It's in yeah, South north Africa. part of South Africa, um, near the Namibian border. Where they literally are living on an asbestos mine, it sounds like. And it, yeah, I guess on first impressions from the film it, and from reading about that place, it sounds like an incredibly sorrowful, desperate place, really. Mm. So uh, the film's called Lamentations of Judas, and it opens with some footage from the uh, uh, kind of a bit of a background to the, the Angolan Wars. Angola uh, got its independence in 1976 uh, and shortly afterwards a, a communist government uh, government took charge um, and they were some kind of funding from China and Russia on their side. Uh, the United States put uh, uh, funding to, to kind of counteract their, re- their regime, channeled it through South Africa and so so, so this is kind of the backdrop that the film starts with uh, before then explaining the role of these soldiers and uh, and how they've been taken from um, Angola to, to fight against their own people in effect. 
And the title of the film, The Lamentation of Judas, obviously indicates this kind of the way, as Mel said, that they're um, that they're thought of, you know, that they're thought of both both by themselves, I think, as much as as by the people from their own country. And after that kind of initial introduction, we then uh, there's then a series of interviews where you basically see one of the ex-soldiers themselves sat at the table talking directly into the camera, and you can hear some of the questions off screen from not the director someone else who's um we're not really aware of who that is do you think well who's interviewing them yeah there's a couple of shots where you kind of see the side on of the setup don't you and you can see a man an african man in the chair who's not obviously boris goetz who's a dutch director uh, opposite the person that's being interviewed I didn't know if we saw a shot of the person who was actually interviewing. Yeah, there were a couple of kind of sideways shots that showed the setup, mm. um, and the quite and, and it's an African man asking the questions, isn't it? It's an African-sounding voice. Mm, voice. No, because you hear little snippets of somebody speaking in English. Yeah. Um, and and he's translating the their the question. So he's translating the question. So the, I don't think the interviewer is oh, South yeah. African or yeah, Angolan. That's, that's right. Yeah. So I look stupid now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they're kind of, and some of the questions are the same each time. So uh, some t- they're asking their kind of their name and their rank in the army, and they often get them to give their number. And then some of the other questions kind of begin to develop and, and ask more about their own feelings about the war and their and their role in it. So have you got anything to say about the interview material in particular? Well, I guess... Uh, because this is obviously a kind of therapy context. Well, I don't know if it is a therapy context. You mean the film is a therapy context? Or? Well, yeah. I mean, it kind of... A lot of the uh, promotional material for the film talks about this as being kind of part of their... You know, they're going through therapy or... Yeah. I reflection d- on it. Perhaps I just read that into it. Yeah, I don't know if there, you've read that into it, if that's what it is. Um, but I'm interested in that idea and whether there's any therapeutic input into the making of the film I guess I was interested watching it mm. as to whether that might be the case or not um, like looking at the credits at the end there didn't seem to obviously be a person credited in the film as being involved mm. in the kind of psychological side of the well-being of the people who are, who are in the film Yeah. Um, so I, I'd be interested in that um, and I'm interested that you kind of you read it as the title the lamentations of judas that that meant that you i think you said earlier that you thought that meant that you thought that the the people playing in the passion play saw themselves as that yeah well the people being interviewed yeah i wonder where that themselves in that Uh, i think it just kind of linked to how they how they seem to talk about their own role in it and there was just i guess just a kind of sense hangs over the film almost with that being the title that kind of puts it out there um plus as as you were saying earlier it kind of in some ways defines that role of they were from angola but they ended up fighting against uh, yeah i totally get the the metaphor and Mm. i guess obviously that's what the film is trying to do is to kind of use that use it almost as a therapeutic story and use that metaphor in the story of um, the the betrayer Judas the betrayer is a metaphor for the for the this group of men, um, but I I don't know I felt watching it that I wasn't sure that they saw themselves like that they were aware very much yeah. aware that that's how they were framed 
in their own kind of home cultural society being called the terrible ones and that's how they've been labelled but um, my impression from hearing them speak was that most of them seemed to have felt like they hadn't had any choice in what they'd done and Mm. um, there's there's a lot about the idea of like um, about choice and and whether we choose our own paths or our own lives yeah Um, let's talk about them being held you know being forced into it at gunpoint weren't they yeah they were forced into it at gunpoint they were soldiers and they were obeying orders and it didn't sound like they had much choice in that Um, and and yet they've been labelled as Judas Um, but whether um, yeah whether it was a therapeutic process for them or not I don't know I find that interesting to hear more I found the interviewers quite quite directive in a lot of his questions and mm. obviously I, I just wonder whether it was the, whether the idea for the film was set up beforehand we're going to use this metaphor and this group of people to as a way of portraying this metaphor yeah um, for betrayal and exploring it and it's an interesting idea in itself but um it felt like quite quite a few of the questions were kind of leading them into that almost leading them into that metaphor and making drawing those parallels for them yeah so i'm not sure whether they would have necessarily drawn those parallels themselves beforehand or not i don't know that, i guess that'd be yeah that's really interesting because it kind of because it yeah it almost starts with that as a presupposition and the film goes on to kind of undermine that i think almost doesn't it as in as in i guess if you were uh, familiar with the story before, and particularly perhaps if you were one of those people, um, an Angolan that wasn't perhaps from the kind of point, viewpoint of Angola, you might you might view those people in that sense, or that the way they're always pre- presented, as you, as you say, they're kind of known as the terrible ones. Uh, and by calling the film the Lamentations of Judas, it kind of sets up that that premise. But actually, what happens as the film unfolds and those un- interviews unfold is the footage that is then brought into the final edit of the film undermines that perspective kind of quite consistently doesn't it do you think is that maybe that's just me that yeah thinks that but yeah maybe i find myself feeling occasionally frustrated i think with the interviewer yeah just felt like he was almost trying to lead them into into that story mm. um in that way i don't know i don't know <laughs> because then I guess because the other thing is how the how the story then interacts with the Jesus story that is is kind of acted out as if it's a kind of you know as as a professional Jesus film you know it's it's not I think I was almost expecting it to be a kind of obviously amateur production um, not that it would necessarily be lacking production values but just you know that the actors um, mm. wouldn't would seem like amateur actors, and the, and the s- scenes would, you know, have a kind of amateurish feel to them. Whereas actually, they felt quite professional. It could have, you know, you yeah. felt that if you had extracted the interview sections out, you would have a kind of, you could have a kind of short Jesus film in its own right. Yeah, and I I was almost watching it. I almost found myself wanting to watch it. Yeah. As as just the Jesus film without the interviews and yeah. I and I felt like actually maybe then maybe we didn't need the interviewer to, to kind of be pointing out to us ah this is this is the parallel between Judas and 
the lives of these actual people. Um, maybe that was already there and would have been obvious and or maybe we could have discovered that for ourselves without that. I don't know. Mm. I found myself almost wanting to see it just as the just as the Jesus story. Um, and it, it might have had a different feel to it or it had a different um, impact, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. Um, because it certainly, like you say, it didn't feel like in any way the acting was amateur or anything. If anything, no. it reminded me of, I was saying, it reminded me of Pasolini's Gospel according to St. Matthew. Yeah. Just something about it that felt quite raw and real and the se- maybe the seriousness it felt like a very serious portrayal of Jesus and mm. Judas and all of the disciples and characters it had a very sorrowful kind of mournful feel to it yeah and um, which reflected the feel of the place and the setting that it was being filmed in mm. um, and I think it probably would have still carried that feeling and that atmosphere without having those um interjected kind of interviews with the men themselves and reflecting their history as soldiers okay so i mean are you do you mean like the kind of the whole interview or just the kind of certain questions that were kind of pushing that angle because i kind of think they're yeah i know i I liked a lot of it and Mm. i guess it's it's coming from the perspective of being a therapist that discomfort between um, and sometimes I think I was probably experienced that as a therapist, like um, you wanting to find somebody's story and, and help them to maybe tell their story and assist yeah. them along the way. But it can be really hard if you've got your own idea or agenda of what that story is to not lead them in the way that you want them to go with the story. Mm. And there were just occasions where it felt a little bit like that to me. Um, but actually there was some, you know, there was some really, um, was, there were very moving stories to hear. Yeah. I think there were moments as well where it felt almost... I felt like I was intruding on somebody's very deep, traumatic, personal pain. Mm. Um, I think it was the last soldier that was interviewed, just yeah, the sorrow and the tears. and He was obviously incredibly shaken telling that story. And to be watching that on film felt quite intrusive. And I guess I'm always aware as a therapist, not wanting to like intrude on someone's pain in mm. the way that you talk and ask questions and... It's a very delicate process, I suppose, and um, I mean, there are a lot of journalists out there who are very adept at that as well, and and I'm not saying that it wasn't done well, because I think it was done well, but I think it's probably more a reflection of the intensity of the trauma that these Mm. men have been through, and... um, how, how challenging and difficult it is to sensitively talk to somebody about something that painful and that traumatic yeah I'm not sure I answered your question then <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but it yeah so it, I mean, it is kind of interesting because those questions do lead on to those answers that make such a, a powerful thing um, but as you say it kind of has that it is yeah I mean I, I'm not I think particularly because of your perspective because you're kind of very attuned to the subtleties of certain questions I think you particularly realised that whereas I'm not sure I would necessarily have realised it Um, and I mean I know a couple of times you kind of said as you're watching they were kind of leading a little bit but I I think probably people that aren't that familiar with a therapeutic context would not necessarily find that but it's certainly 
an important point. <laughs> I mm. think in the but but it but also I think I guess having got those people to tell the stories and that being kind of critical part of the of the production as a whole it's how you then present those isn't it yeah and I suppose and maybe even if the questions weren't ideal is it more is it more honest as a filmmaker to include the questions clumsy as perhaps they are I don't know whether clumsy is the right word but um or to kind of present the testimony without them and I guess that's a you know I wonder how much they wonder if they wrestled with that one as they were yeah and maybe it felt more honest to include the questions and yeah um I think they were really you know they were interesting questions and they Mm. they certainly brought about an interesting dialogue yeah um I think the other thing you were saying was how that brought out the the Bible story itself and maybe brought out different aspects of the Bible story that you might not have thought of mm. or that made you think about it in a different way. I know for me, I it did make me think about the Judas character a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, so I think the thing that stood out to me in this film was the portrayal of Judas mm. and it definitely made me think a bit differently about the character, um, particularly about the idea of choice. Yeah. And whether he had any kind of choice in betraying Jesus, and I guess how that paralleled, that stood out. I guess because it paralleled with the story of the soldiers mm. and how they talked about um, maybe things that might be seen as war crimes, and how they didn't have any choice in that. Yeah. Um, but I guess I particularly noticed how, yeah, Jesus tells him to go and betray him, and that that moment where Jesus says you'll betray me and yeah. that who's kind of chosen to do that yeah because it's it's kind of interesting isn't it how it um it it's it's kind of a, it's not a, it's not quite a direct command but certainly it's a lot more direct than in other than in most other versions of the story i mean you've kind of got uh, jesus christ superstar where he kind of like falsetto orders it you know shouts at him <laughs> get out just go go on and do it kind of stuff um, but generally, uh, Jesus, you know, there's kind of maybe the sense that Jesus knows about it, but actually it's happening. That Judas knows about it. Well, no, that the, the Jesus kind of knows about that it's happening, but he's not really directing it. It's just kind of like what is happening to Judas. Um, I mean, like I remember, um, I always kind of think of kind of uh, Richard Herring and Stuart Lee kind of had a sketch um, where they're kind of, you know, where... Judas decides to say, "Well, no, I'm not going to do it. Then I'm not going to do it," and it, and ends up kind of almost getting Jesus to kind of beg. Jesus is almost kind of begging him to do it because he knows that he needs Judas to do it. But there's that kind of thing of Judas's role being being critical, and a whole kind of salvation thing mm. couldn't happen without that role. So it feels almost like this this playing out of the story is preordained, yeah. and Judas has got to play his part. Yeah. his role in the story and I guess when you're seeing a passion play enacted maybe that's exaggerated that idea of this the playing out something that's preordained and that's the, that's the thing that, that it seems to kind of play with that idea yeah um, particularly as there's these conversations in the interviews that parallel that um, almost asking questions the interview asks some very so this asks some very leading questions but some of them are interesting because they're kind of trying to bring out that point i think almost mm. like did you have any choice in what you did yeah in this war um do you believe that people 
have any choice in life or does life just happen and yeah. they're the kind of conversations that are paralleling the passion play and that's it's interesting from that point of view yeah and it's something that's not often done in and I think Jesus films don't tend to bring that out so much. So quite often Judas is kind of seen as a figure who chooses to do these things. He chooses to, you know, do it because he doesn't think Jesus is going to be, you know, military leader like he maybe thought he was or because, you know, because he wants to give Jesus a platform to kind of reveal who he is. Whereas here it feels a bit more like, like you say, Jesus doesn't necessarily direct him 100%, but certainly kind of like gives him permission to <laughs> and you know and there's that sense of the kind of inevitability of it, that Judas the Judas figure or figures don't really have that much say in in what actually happens yeah and the Judas character in this film says I'm the only one you chose master yeah and so he, there's this sense that he's been chosen for this particular task he's the only one that's been chosen mm. to betray um yeah. And that, yeah, just this idea of choice seems really interesting. And, and I think, I mean, a lot of the questions that the interviewer asks are like massive life questions, mm. like life and death questions, meaning of life questions. I think he even asks what's, yeah, he does ask at one point, what do you, do you believe in there being some kind of meaning in life? There's that kind of questions, and that kind of questions are asked. And yeah. one of the soldiers replies, there's, after quite a long pause and thought, there's no meaning of life. Um, we're just on the way to death. He said mm. something like that. Yeah, I think it's the final interview, um, isn't it? Yeah, so it kind of feels like the through kind of bringing these interviews alongside. Um, I feel like I'm take, making a U-turn and saying the interviews <laughs> are really interesting, actually, because <laughs> through well, paralleling that with yeah. with the passion play, it kind of brings out the like questions of life and death and meaning and choice mm. that we are held within the Jesus story that aren't necessarily yeah really so noticeable necessarily in other films mm. and other tellings of the story yeah and I think it's um I mean it's, it's interesting kind of how that that I'm thinking particularly of the last the last scene here and uh, so this might be spoilers if you've not <laughs> seen it then just forward wind but but almost that kind of like there's that there's a kind of scene which is partly Gethsemane but it's also partly kind of resurrection-y where the kind of disciples are walking along and Jesus and Judas have this conversation and then they stop and Judas gives him the kind of the kiss the kind of garden of Gethsemane kiss and we kind of see some soldiers in the background closing in a little bit and and Jesus then walks off to the kind of the the, the kind of left of the screen is followed by the disciples and the camera stays on the disciples for a bit rather than Jesus uh, and then um, it then moves to look at Judas then kind of you know, kind of quite a lengthy shot walking off into the into the distance so to speak and so that's that's quite an interesting twist on all those things I think the way the camera we talked about Pasolini earlier I think the way the camera kind of focuses on on the disciples and the kind of passage there and the kind of way Jesus moves out of the shot is quite reminiscent, reminiscent of the, the kind of ascension scene in Pasolini but it's also interesting the way with Judas it doesn't end with it doesn't end with him hanging himself or even um, him necessarily being condemned he just like kind of walks off into the into the distance there as well so is it that I'm trying to work out what you're saying is it that maybe some of the more important or crucial parts of the narrative 
are kind of happening in the background or even happening off scene and we don't actually see them it just kind of is passing yeah i mean i think yeah but i think we, i mean we've seen that in a few other places still talking about the kind of ending there so the the whole the crucifixion itself which obviously is usually kind of the pivotal primary scene in the jesus films is is kind of actually here not shown yeah we don't but see it's, it, do it no it's represented instead by a kind of series of shots so there's a, i think we see a we see a shot of um, a man carrying a kind of bundle of wood across his shoulders as if it's a kind of cross beam and the way the kind of camera focuses on his feet and his and his and, and the way he's carrying it is very you know reminiscent of all those kind of shots of jesus walking to Gethsemane and then we see a woman kind of manufacturing a crown of thorns, a man standing by a bit of fire, another man holding a, um, a sheet, these are all different shots. Um, and it's a slain a, lamb isn't it, it's a yeah, dead it's a, lamb yeah, that he's holding. Yeah that's a much better way of <laughs> <laughs> bringing out the, the, the symbol. symbolism of that. Um, and so and so that's what we that's what we kind of get in terms of, an, we don't get an actual kind of crucifixion or a death scene. Um, it's it's represented by by symbols rather than um, yeah, and the feeling the feeling that's held kind of in those symbols and those shots because they're really silent shots yeah and they feel they feel quite deathly just the mm. silence and the solemnity of those shots mm. so I think even though we don't have a physical crucifixion you definitely get the feeling that a death has happened yeah um, and it has a funeral kind of feel to it and. Am I right to carry on? Have you mm, finished no, what you're saying? Yeah, no, yeah. So I think that takes me back to the scene where the sheep is killed. So yeah. you can see a scene of the sh- of the sheep just about just about to be killed mm. by two men who are holding it and holding it, and you feel the helplessness of the sheep. It's quite. I found that quite distressing that scene, and I found myself wanting to look away, thinking, "Oh my goodness, there's about to be a load of blood mm. everywhere," but you don't see the blood. Yeah. Um, instead, you. Um, the camera focuses on um, a boy who's apparently watching the sheep be killed Mm. and we just look into the eyes of this boy this little boy who's watching Um, and that that in itself almost feels more distressing than actually seeing the blood and I don't know, I think this this kind of bringing back this idea of what happens off screen is almost what's important what you don't see in this film is, is what's important about this film mm. and it it's held in the eyes of the people that you're looking into those haunted eyes yeah um that you see in that boy the eyes of judas the kind of sense of despair and sorrow that's kind of held in those faces um and i guess those faces that are carrying the reality of the horrors that they've seen in their lives yeah um that have happened off screen we don't see any of that or really hear that much about what they've what they've done or what they've seen mm. in their past yeah. It's kind of the feeling of it is carried in their faces. Because mm. part of me was wondering, you know, we were watching it last night, just that uh, we've got a 12 year old and a 14 year old that were kind of going to bed. Um, and we were, we were kind of, you know, wondering if, you know, finger on the pause button in case they came in at a kind of bit that was a bit distressing. But actually, you know, any of the kind of like, any of the kind of, none of the footage in terms of what is actually shown is, is kind of distressing but it's obviously about this very awful time <laughs> and kind of you know horrific acts but they kind of 
those stay off camera and they're not there aren't kind of graphic descriptions of them even really no. um, that's all implied and understood um, and I think that and that scene kind of typifies it because the boy looks I mean it looks it really looks like the boy is witnessing that scene um, but actually we've got no indication that that's what happens and it's not just a couple of fairly minor sound effects but you totally when you're watching it it feels like it's a real it's a real thing it's a real moment mm. um, and I found that much more powerful than I think than having like you know a gory yeah crucifixion like Mel Gibson's mm. crucifixion for example like having a horrific kind of gory pain-filled crucifixion scene um just that yeah the feeling carried in this film felt much more powerful and more real to me really yeah and because of that because though because the physical physicality of the death is is not shown yeah yeah definitely uh, there are a couple of things i was going to say about the book the boy as well um so it's just very reminiscent of me so i've recently um well very reminiscent of the uh, South African made Jesus film uh, Jazile or Son of Man um, which is another film which like this film is made by a kind of like white uh, European director um, but one who's spent a significant amount of time in the country uh, there's likewise there's this kind of modernised story running in parallel with the kind of Jesus story and the kind of blending of the two sets of imagery and that kind of um, emphasis on, on modern day conflict uh, in Africa um, and there in that film the angels are all played by boys and and one boy in particular one angel in particular kind of there's quite a few kind of um, mid shots of him as there is in this as there is in, this, in, in that scene it's almost a kind of identical thing and I kind of like that kind of sense of you know him being a kind of almost angelic figure it's only kind of really the scene only scene I recall him in um, that, that kind of angelic presence as well mm. um, is, is kind of interesting. And also similar to the angelic figure in Pasolini. Yeah, Pasolini's film. yeah that's a good point. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. I was going to say something about the lighting. In fact, I think we were both going to say something about the lighting. I, I've watched a couple of kind of 21st century African films in the last in the last few weeks so Timbuktu and uh, Wale and although those are kind of more kind of North Africa than, than South Africa but just really struck by the kind of the the kind of the lighting um, of these films all, all three of those uh, are largely set in kind of fairly rural parts of Africa um, and and they're predominantly set outside and you um, you know and you kind of it seems to me the light feels similar in those films and very different to what you kind of see in in more European films when Europeans are set out, films are set outside obviously films in Britain it's always rainy anyway um, and and also those kind of like I mean we associate California with the sun um, and kind of those Californian exteriors shot in the sun even those feel different from the kind of lighting here and the kind of the, and partly that's probably the landscapes but it also feels like it's yeah, and it's it's just really beautiful. The kind of that that kind of that, yeah, that kind of. The, the There's nothing very natural about it, isn't there? Yeah, There's nothing very yeah. natural about the light. So you don't at any point feel like you're in a studio with 
No. Even the indoor scenes feel like the light is feels very natural. Yeah. And the thing I noticed, I suppose, was the shadows and how the light and shadows just contrast throughout the whole film. So the scenes where you're, where the interviewer is talking to the soldiers, there's really stark shadows that sometimes and stark shadows and light contrast that sometimes are kind of mm. falling on their faces or on their bodies or just behind them, um, which feels very natural. Um, also, I guess for me brings to mind I guess I'm always interested in um, kind of the psychological aspect of an image and the idea of the shadow mm. and the shadows that these men might might carry um, from their past and um, and from the things that they've seen and again mm. it's that idea of the things that are unseen like the unconscious parts or the hidden parts what's hidden in this film yeah. seems to be what's most interesting about it for me and the aesthetics seem to kind of mirror that idea for me as well yeah it's um, really interesting yeah, aesthetically um we've, we've, i think we both found it a really stunning film um, mm. just kind of quite a lot of space and silence light and shadow um that feeling of I think that funereal feeling throughout mm. it really the feeling of sorrow and the mournfulness of the place um that the film's set in like this place where these people are actually living that's actually like an asbestos, asbestos mine yeah. is it where they live um so the place itself seems to be quite kind of there's something kind of deathly about it i suppose yeah perhaps that's the feeling i get for the film and there's that sense of kind of cursed land as well um the other thing that stood out to me aesthetically is just the dreamlike quality in the mm. film and i guess that ties to this idea of things being things that are unseen yeah. things that are hidden maybe as well um, but also maybe a little bit kind of dissociative like which I guess connects to the un the hidden trauma that they that that's kind of carried throughout this place and yeah. through the film through the characters um, through the real life characters and the characters in the story yeah okay so um the music yeah, the music. So the music's also quite, you kind of talked about mournful, the music also kind of really gives it that mournful feel, doesn't it? Mm. Um, and so I the, like music feels the music feels important in this film, doesn't yeah. it? I think yeah. that's worth saying, really, and it feels like it connects, again, It feel, you feel, get the feeling that the music connects to the land and to the people. Mm. Um, it feels authentic. I think that's one of the things... That this film seems to carry a real authenticity. Yeah. Um, which for me, again, connects to that Pasolini um, telling of the of the gospel according to Saint Matthew. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, the music again seems to kind of connect that to that authenticity. You feel like you're watching like real faces and music that connects to the land, people that connects to the place. Yeah. That we're in. Um, but also there's a mournfulness to it as well and a sorrow that seems mm. really genuine. Yeah, and that can, you know, particularly the music's got that really kind of mournful feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and even the more, like, celebratory moments in the film yeah. still feel quite mournful. Yeah, so there's quite a lot of... So, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the film is there's quite a few scenes of the triumphal entry 
um, or what might be you know, interpreted as that. You've got Jesus sitting on a donkey, you've got large crowds uh, very often waving palm leaves around and this kind of thing. And there's actually two or maybe three quite lengthy scenes of that. But even there where they're kind of singing, the singing Hosanna is in the soundtrack, it's, it feel there's still a kind of tinge of sadness to it somehow. Mm. Which, yeah, I guess in a conventional Jesus film, although we all know where it's going, it's kind of portrayed as if we're, you know, the people are not meant to know where it's going. They're just kind of celebrating and have a good time. Um, whereas this feels a bit, more, little bit more knowing, um, and that's mm. really interesting. I think. I don't know if everything, everything about it just feels quite understated. Mm. So nothing's overacted because they're not actors I guess yeah. um, it, it feels like it's sort of just kind of been walked through like you're just walking through the story with them almost in a very understated subtle kind of way and the sadness is kind of carried through that and that's yeah. nothing's kind of overplayed or overstated almost yeah yeah it's really interesting I am um, I, I was going to talk about some of the other some of the other scenes about having touched on the kind of triumphal entry then um, I was going to talk about some of the other biblical scenes because it, it yeah the film itself there is it, it feels like the Jesus material could kind of be like extracted as its own short film but but it's also interesting how it's put in so there's kind of repetition and slightly different versions of the same event which is kind of interesting particularly from a kind of you know for those that are interested in the difference between the four gospels that's an interesting touch um for example we yeah. have we've already talked about the end of the film where there's a kind of gethsemane type moment but there's also one right at the start and we see um we see which is not kind of stood out for me because uh that moment in mark where kind of the young man runs away naked uh features in this film as well is this film as well at the start but you kind of get the the Gethsemane scenes at the start and the end and I think it's almost like that is it's almost like that is the pivotal point uh, of the film rather than the kind of the crucifixion which I suppose is the pivotal point in, in a standard mm. Jesus film That's interesting, um, yeah. but it's kind of like bookended by this early scene of Gethsemane and this later scene of Gethsemane and perhaps the earlier scene is a little more conventional than that in, in, end scene um, but perhaps not and then we also see uh, we also see the fig tree, the scene where Jesus curses the fig tree and the fig tree withers. I can't remember to what extent Jesus actually curses the fig tree here, and to what extent he's just merely commenting on it. But that's quite an interesting concept, yeah. that idea of cursing. And uh, yeah, I, I, that kind of makes me think about um, the, again about the idea of this being like a cursed place or a cursed mm. land um, or a cursed people and. Um, actually did Judas have any any choice in his role in the story or again or was or was he cursed yeah um, was he cursed by Jesus was he cursed to kind of play out his role and the same with the parallel with the soldiers that sense of um, their lives being cursed did they have any choice in their lives and how their lives played out mm. um, and you know the land itself like we said before yeah feeling that that we're watching kind of almost cursed people in a cursed line land yeah the thing of the asbestos being in the ground and that mm. you know being on an asbestos mine um i used to be a contaminated land um 
person uh, in a previous consultant, pre- consultant <laughs> in a previous <laughs> in a previous career and so that kind of in a past life yeah and that that sense of you know the land you know the kind of land they're being on is poor and almost kind of reflecting that that um that cursedness about them and that's also a very biblical idea about you know the land kind of being it's either actively cursed by people or bearing a curse that affects people um was really i thought was really interesting i mean it feels like the, the film is asking like massive kind of life and death questions all the way through and mm. it really like brings out those questions in the passion play in, in a way that not many other tellings of yeah. this story does for me for me personally it felt like that and it's again it's interesting how some of the little some of those elements just kind of result in bits that are not often that covered in Jesus films getting brought out so again at the last supper there's a mo- there's a story in the last supper i think it's john's gospel where um suddenly peter i think it is brings out two you know brings out two swords and says look jesus here are two swords and jesus says um, that is enough uh, no indication as to quite how he says it but that's quite often it's a bit of a weird verse and it's quite often kind of left out because of that particularly because we kind of you know we're always emphasizing jesus you know as a you know and the kind of the kind of prince of peace type element but here here that scene's included and you can actually see the two swords and they they feel like they're a real thing here whereas even in the versions that have them it's just you know well it says this here so we've got to say it whereas here it kind of feels there's a real edge to the sword if that's not a, a bad the physicality of it I yeah is, yeah is there and there's a lot of symbolism though in this film isn't there and it feels mm. like that connects to the symbol of the the soldiers and the war and yeah um brings you back to that again yeah definitely well we you wanted to talk about the poetry a little bit or we'll read a bit you mentioned the kind of poetry a couple of times yeah i really yeah i found felt felt really moved by the poetry in the film i'll just read a little section invisible filaments tie me to you branching out feverishly through the dust, the fog, the fire, indestructible tissue of existence never-ending, into the depths of my body, into the vastness of space, a web of delicate strings that tie everything to everything. My life is not a journey, but a wave that is about to crash. A man's life is incomplete, but another wave will come. So, I think that's more or less what we've got to say about the film uh, the film's called Lamentations of Judas it's out uh, now if you're in the Netherlands um, and if we ever get to go to a cinema again in England or uh, the rest of the UK or perhaps in the USA then keep an eye out for it um, or potentially on streaming at a later stage it really is worth seeing it's a really beautiful film very kind of original and very powerful uh, if people want to look at more of your stuff um, they can. What's the best way for My them? Stuff. If you want to find me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can find you. you can find me. I'm, um, I'm Melanie Pegg, P-E-G-G-E. If you want to find me online. So you Twitter can. Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Yeah. And at Twitter, I'm Matt Page, and you can also find me on my blog, which is Bible Films Blog. Uh, just punch that into Google, and uh, that's probably the easiest way to find that. So thanks very much for listening. Um, hope uh, you found it interesting uh, and we'll maybe do uh, some more of these uh, in the future. Bye.